The Sobe Art Foundation and the National Gallery of Canada are thrilled to announce the finalists for the 2021 Sobe Art Award, Canada's prestigious art prize celebrating exceptional artists and contemporary art from coast to coast to coast. By choosing one nominee from each of the five regions of Canada, the Sobe Art Award provides visibility and financial support to Canadian contemporary artists while offering an opportunity to exchange ideas. This year's five finalists are Lacluck Williamson Battery from Prairies in the North, Remy Belliveau, Atlantic Provinces, Rajni Pereira from Ontario, Gabby Dow, West Coast and Yukon, and Lorna Bauer from Quebec. Congratulations to the shortlisted artists. An exhibition of their works will be presented at the National Gallery this fall, during which the grand prize winner will be announced. Visit gallery.ca to learn about all 25 of this year's outstanding long-listed nominees and to plan your trip. Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. So, Sky, have you ever been featured in Seen and Heard? <laughs> Not to my knowledge, have you? <laughs> um, there was an, an embarrassing moment whereby I was shoved out of frame so that the seat. <laughs> so that the scene and heard photographer could take a picture of my husband. (laughs) Oh, are you serious? He wears clothes so well. Oh my God, he does. I don't blame, I don't blame anybody involved. (laughs) But I was like, yes, please. (laughs) Carry on. The closest we've gotten to scene and heard until today. (laughs) Exactly. But we are here to talk about Seen and Heard. Or Diary, formerly known as Seen and Heard. The, I suppose you should say the art form diary. It really requires its own trademark. Art form diary. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think we're having trouble gathering the threads because it's this feeling that perhaps the art form diary is not necessarily uh, what we would consider to be highbrow art criticism. Um, So it's a thing you need to enter into, perhaps with a little bit of a laugh, but at the same time, I do think that it's worthy of talking about, particularly as like we can think about the kind of blog-like nature of the -hmm. seen and heard uh, being influenced by like early art world blogs, which were kind of the the forerunners of like digital publishing, which Momus practices in a very serious way. So yeah, it's a, it's a, um, you know, it's a lineage there. So, so let's take it seriously, Sky. Okay. (laughs) Well, I was about to call it low calorie. So I'm going to have to roll the tape back a minute, but but it, it like historically it did have, I mean, how historic does this go? I think into the 90s, maybe early aughts. Clearly, I've done my research. But people like Linda Yablonski were zooming yeah. around town with a camera. And this was, of course, pre-social media. So this really served as a lookbook for the art world, the jet set, the biennial circuit, which was starting to emerge. Yeah. Um, and the photos tend to be poor. 
and there's a kind of keening, like teeth bearing desire on the part of the subjects. The whole thing is a little bit grotesque, but, um, as art form is starting to think, try to gain some distance from itself in recent seasons, um, it's shifted over to calling it the diary. So we have today your interview with Christian Vistrup Madsen, who is a very prolific contributor to diary. I think he began with them before the pandemic, but has certainly become their most prominent byline through the pandemic, which is, it's hilarious that they continued the diary at all. And I think he's very much made it his own literary, even romantic exploration of his, of this year of existential endurance. And, and yes, there's been some travel through these diaries in the past year, but what's become so pronounced is that they're not anchored so much to the art, to the subjects that he's um, in conversation with, and, and more just um, rooted in his own footprint, in his own voice in a way that I, I don't think I've ever seen the diaries be quite so um, personal, if that makes hmm. sense. What is this you always say about art criticism, that it's like you're writing art history? Uh, Holding it up to the court of art history. Right. And so I think like there's so much kind of art or writing at the beginning of the pandemic or at the beginning of lockdown and these different positions that people occupy, like even geographically and how uh, that can demonstrate the way that the pandemic experience like traveled mm-hmm. a, across the world. And I think it is, <laughs> it is funny that Kristen starts this in Sweden, right? Which was at the beginning, like they were very, very strongly against engaging in lockdowns mm-hmm. or masks. Mm-hmm. And he starts the article saying like, I guess like to Sweden, this sounded like a dignified approach to a global pandemic. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and then his friend Eric is like, cheers to dignity. <laughs> so I think it's like, yeah, like we, we can look back on this and be like, oh, yeah, I remember like Sweden. <laughs> yeah, it's like a that- mixtape of timelines. Yeah, um, exactly. And he does actually touch on that in the interview because we're talking about sort of how these get edited. And he's like, you know, I am parachuting in oftentimes to a place I've never been before to a community I've never met before and taking sometimes a fairly crude um, impression away. And in, in the mix is now also this highly sensitive, um, completely manifold uh, trauma, right? So how that scans to a community versus an international audience, you know, whether it's the flippancy of the Swedes in this case, or, (laughs) but also this idea that like one can go to a place to avoid um, quarantine restrictions. Yeah. Like you can, you know, to, ha- to have the mobility, as you say, to parachute in, which is, you know, it's no slight on, on Kristen. It is, a fa- it is like a, a fact of the industry. Um, but I think it, 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 this piece is just such a kind of perfect portrait of like all of the ins and outs yes. of um, privilege and industry and personal commitment and personal fiction uh, or not personal fiction, but like... Uh, well, yes. Right, yeah, because he does talk about that too, which I found super interesting and re- actually quite brave. He's allowing himself to perform a voice and right. and sometimes ventriloquize um, or fictionalize the peripheral characters that might bring texture or color or urgency to a, to a particular diary. And there is value in this for him uh, in terms of his larger art writing practice. 
I'd like to hear more about how he is doing this in a considered way, because I think that there's also, you know, there's the danger of kind of being a sort of Truman Capote-esque figure. Mm -hmm. Um, But as I understand it, maybe this strategy is one that he spent a long time thinking about and has practiced in like various kind of high stakes environments, particularly with this book that he's launching. Yeah, he's putting out his first book, um, uh, sort of in time with uh, us launching this episode. And so it's worth worth kind of pointing to that before we dive into this conversation, because it does get picked up. It's um, a book that he, in fact, had excerpted in Moose recently, if uh, our listeners want to take a look at that. And it's essentially, it, well, sorry, let me just introduce it properly. It's called Doing Time, Essays on Using People. And it's a collection of essays about, um, well, including a prison correspondence, um, but also touching on issues of appropriation and the boundaries of fiction, um, especially as it pertains, I think, to um, the work of criticism. And it's, I should mention, being published by Floating Opera Press in Berlin, where uh, Christian is is based. He's a Danish uh, Berlin-based writer. And what I, when I first came across this book, um, it was during an RCA talk he was doing uh, earlier in the pandemic. That's the Royal College of Art, sorry, that he graduated from in 2016. So in this RCA talk he does, he, he says this thing that I wrote down immediately and then like, I think five minutes later invited him to the podcast, which was that you have to be able to bruise easily in order to find your subject. And you have to take that battering again and again. And, and I think this is his approach to criticism, but also to... Uh, the more fictive elements of our chronicling and his acknowledgement in that very kind of Janet Malcolm way of like a morally indefensible art, <laughs> which is criticism, journalism, that you are both exposing and transforming your subject as you touch it with with word. Like the subject observed is uh, blah, subject blah, 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 blah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, someone's, someone's still working. Um, <laughs> And on that point, I'm, I did ask about sort of the if responsibility isn't the, is isn't the right word, then uh, potentially fear that his subjects are constantly sort of presenting for his consumption. Say if he's out on a gallery weekend, um, cribbing notes right. and you know slinging drinks, but there's this constant sort of looming specter that in fact a conversation or uh, an exchange would be highlighted in the pages of the diary thereafter that changes. In fact, just as you're saying, a thing uh, witnesses, a thing transforms. So there's that Heisenberg mm-hmm. principle kind of floating around his own social milieu now. And I, I asked if that, if that, um, how conscious I suppose he is of that as he's moving through these exchanges. And he said, not very, because we're overstating the significance of the reporter, the writer, or even the the cultural memory of for this kind of writing, which surprised me because this is a person who seems to really love his own prose, if I can say. Like he <laughs> takes a lot of pleasure in this reading you're about to hear. And yeah. and even in pulling quotes from other diary entries along the way. And and I love yeah. to hear a writer take pleasure in their own writing once it's yeah. been set and not just sort of yeah. squirrel away from it. Nevertheless, there is this moment in which he sort of diminishes his own um, status in, in this whole exchange and then says something that I find so potent and I'm quoting him now there's such an overemphasis on representation as though representation is the sphere in which the violence takes place and not the sphere in which the violence is portrayed there's a if, if not a relinquishing 
in that than at least an acknowledgement that, in fact, this is the work of reporting. And so what he's taking in, however subjectively framed, it should not be, you know what I mean? Don't shoot the messenger. At the same time, if we're talking about don't shoot the messenger, it's like, okay, well, is the messenger reporting accurately? And it would seem that no, the messenger is actually uh, fictionalizing. We can call this journalism, in which case stick to the rules of journalism, or we can call this something else. No, no, no. Because I think what I'm trying to say is not journalism. In fact, that's that's an, uh, a mistake. A reportage, let's say. Maybe, but because there is that fictionalized element and a kind of magic realism sometimes even to these, or certainly a romanticism um, to these texts, there, I think... It, He's inviting us not to trust the teller right, of the tale. Right, okay. And in that, so he presents himself as an unreliable narrator. He does. And in that, there is also, if, if we're going to paint the art world and sometimes it's garish lighting, if we're allowing some of that sensory um, barrage to happen in the page and for some of those characters to, in fact, appear reptilian or monstrous along the way or just dumb, then that, I think, is him saying, let's not ascribe the violence to the writing so much as to the sphere that it, it seeks to account. I, I, anyway, I, I know this is a conversation that we could we could probably fight over. His work is something that is worthy of debate, um, but I will say he's holding his own ambivalence at the at the top of his mind, I think, as he engages in his own work. And for that, right. you know, I give a tip of my chapeau. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I mean, drunken reptilian there, but for the grace of God go I. <laughs> so <laughs> let us not delay further. <laughs> Here is Sky Gooden talking to Christian Bistrup Madsen about his art form diaries. He reads from on and on and on, published in December 2020 in Art Forum. Eric met me for dinner in Stockholm, where I had a few hours to kill before my night train north. We sat alone in the large and self-consciously old-fashioned restaurant in the central station while a second wave of COVID-19 ravaged the Swedish capital. Unlike in Germany, establishments, and crucially for my visit, exhibitions remain open here. Throughout the pandemic, the state has declined to enforce the use of masks and social distancing, appealing instead to people's sense of civic responsibility to control the virus, though the government is now reconsidering this strategy. It sounded dignified on paper, I sighed. Cheers to dignity, gloomed Eric, the clink of our wine glasses echoing through the empty room. We might just take it to the grave. Sixteen hours later, I arrived in Malmberget, a mining town in the Arctic Circle and one of the Lulo Biennial's several sites scattered across the Norrbotten region. The name translates to the Iron Mountain, and everything here is titled with the same self-evidence. One neighborhood is called the Middle Area, another the Other Side. Installed at Velkomnaskolan, a defunct high school awaiting demolition, Georgi Gago Gagishida's video, The Invisible Hand of My Father, from 2019, tells the story of the artist's dad who lost his lower arm working at a construction site. Here, the illogic of the relationship between the so-called invisible hand of the market and the actual hands that do the labor of capitalism is made perversely literal. 
Gagishida's father can still feel his hand, though he can't see it. Likewise, we can visit Mount Berryet and the people who live there, but officially, it no longer exists. When you collide with the reality of the Capitalocene in Mount Berryet, the contradictions are absurd. The town would not have been there at all were it not for the mine. Now the mine is also the reason for its disappearance. As more iron waits beneath the ground, it evidently makes more financial sense to relocate the community's remaining inhabitants, as well as every home, shop, and ice skating rink, to newly built settlements in nearby Yelivara, rather than stop extracting. The gradual evacuation of Malmberiet is projected to be completed by 2032. On the map, the area is shrouded in a transparent gray film, as if it had sunk into limbo. You feel very small when you see everything that you took for granted, even the roads just disappear without a trace. David Veerenen, a poet who has lived most of his life in the town, told a small group of freezing journalists. The sun started its descent in the early afternoon, and by 2 p.m. the sky had gone from icy lilac to fire. The light and vast distances really warp the time-space of the north. The few people that have yet to be moved out of Malmberiet are anxious to leave what's increasingly become a ghost town, the rumbles of the mine growing louder beneath it. But what they'll really miss, Veyrenen said, gesturing at the white slopes in the distance, is the view. The weirdest thing about the far north is how much pizza is eaten there. One might picture themselves eating reindeer and cloud breeze with cutlery carved from antlers, but no. Pizza and a local variety of sauerkraut that the Swedes call pizza salad. This is simply the restaurant concept that works in remote locations. Add to skewed temporality and atypism. I thought about this as I took in Thomas Hemian's Still Life 2020, a famously perjurable Velvicia plant placed inside an artificial aging chamber in Velkomnaskolan. Most organic things would die in there in no time, but this, the pizza of plants, also known as a living fossil, will merely travel 40 years into its own millenarian future during the span of the exhibition. Hemian, usually London-based, has spent the pandemic at his family house on a mountain called Thunder, not far from Malmberiet. His neighbor is an ex-convict who killed a man with a hunting rifle in a drunken dispute over a woman. And when the police came to arrest him, they found a whole trove of artworks stolen from a local exhibition hidden under his waterbed. It became the foundation of the L.F. Norbotten Insurance Company's art collection, which now also includes one of Hemian's works. What an unlikely flower to grow from such a nasty seed is probably what he tells himself when he goes to sleep on the mountain he shares with the murderer. From Malmberiet, it takes three hours to reach the city of Lulo by bus. It is 4 p.m. and pitch black on both sides of the road, like driving through a tunnel. At the center of the Kunsthal, a six-spouted coffee pot turned into a fountain by Mons Wange continuously floods a neatly said table, an ambivalent monument to the Swedish welfare state. Adjacent, an installation by Isak Sundström presents the tattered magician's cape and wand found at the site of the Nordic factory of wizardry appliances, which was abandoned on the banks of the Lula River in 1964. 
titled Time on Earth. The exhibition is structured by the question of what realism might mean today, and in lieu of an answer, many of the works on view offer flights of fancy. Reality, it turns out, is best viewed from its disintegrating fringes. At Galerie Susta, three people at a time were allowed to attend the incredible art world debut of Augusta Strömberg, a painter who was born in 1866 and who spent most of her life in mental hospitals. With Strömberg, the Biennial's curators, Karin Bela Lavia, Emily Fallian, and Asrin Haidari, really struck gold. Her tightly surfaced pictures call to mind Grant Wood's American Gothic, 1930, or L.S. Lowry's depictions of industrial Britain, except earlier, for the most part, flatter and more hieroglyphic. Thirteen of her works from 1900 to 1930 are joined by those of 21st century artists Susanna Yablonsky and Anna Bass who both seek to relativize presence and perception by breaking open what we think we know about materials and images. In this context, it is striking how keenly Stromberg clung to reality in her work, how objective and almost mathematical it appears. A few of the artists and organizers assembled for an intimate pizza party at Lulo's Kunsthalle. When stories from the 2018 biennial came up on Agnes's Instagram, we huddled around her phone like tweenagers around pornography. I feature in the video clips too, melted and messed up with what seemed like all of Stockholm flipping out to Gabber music and drinking from the same bottle of Prosecco. So many outfits, so much excitement. A butch police officer proudly shut down the party with a huge smile on her face. Maybe this isn't a time for realism, but romanticism. Escape. In 2020, we ended the night doing karaoke in an Airbnb, wailing into a ritually sanitized microphone. If I had to do the same again, I would, my friend, Fernando. Back in Berlin and under house arrest, I can confirm. I would. I wanted to see if you could simply set these diaries up for us just to start. So how do they function? And and maybe this is a, a useful moment to kind of talk about how they used to function versus how they are now. Mm. Um, I guess what I can say about this is more sort of based on my, on my own experience and what I've kind of picked up from, um, from, from other people's stories, you know, I guess we, I think the diary really sort of rose to prominence maybe in the, in the two thousands. And, and, and there was this period when, um, when Linda Yablonsky would like go around in New York and like photograph everyone with a digital camera and every diary would come with like hundreds of pictures. Um, and, and maybe it was a, it was a bit more glamorous than it, than it maybe tends to be, now uh, for for many reasons. Also, I guess it was a time without Instagram, right? And much social media. So it sort of made a different kind of sense to like Mm -hmm. make the characters of the art world uh, visible in that way. Um, Now it feels a little bit like um, almost sort of like a vintage, like novelty to see people's pictures. I mean, um, there are so many more pictures right. on on Instagram. If you want to see what people did at Art Basel, then you just have to look at their stories, right? Um, and but I think that 
what I, what my experience of working with the, with the editors at Art Forum over the last few years is that they seem to be quite interested in doing stories that are not sort of, of course, there'll always be an, a story from Art Basel and from Freeze New York and from these kinds of more glamorous, big events. But they're also increasingly interested um, in doing stories that are a little bit more strange, stories from like odd, faraway places like Lulo, um, stories from like, um, I did a, I reported from a conference at Savvy Contemporary, this art space in Berlin, which was about toxicity, mm-hmm. um, sort of things that are a little bit more like thorny and, and intellectual and, um, mm-hmm this goes really well with other kind of developments in the art world. And it it follows a lot of like things that have happened in the, in the meantime, right? Like with, I think developments around um, say like me too. And, and like a lot more awareness about like what the kind of the like grossness of like flying around the, the world and attending every biennial, there's a kind of different feeling about this now, I think. Um, And especially after the pandemic, yeah, that's something I wanted to to get into. Actually, I, I had that question sort of set up as the last one, but we could <laughs> we could zoom there now, which is just to get a sense of how you're feeling about doing this kind of writing fifteen months into a pandemic that has a lot of us looking skeptically or derisively at that kind of biennial circuit. You know, um, the airspace in which a lot of these diaries exist. Mm. I think that this was something that was happening already before the pandemic. Um, I wonder if I could like uh, read another uh, excerpt from one of the yeah, other diaries, sure. which I, I think is quite like emblematic for me of, of this. This was like one of the last diaries I, or, or the, this is the diary from the, from Berlin gallery weekend, 2019, um, which was, was kind mm-hmm. of like quite peak, um, um, peak in terms of this, the, the sort of perverseness of the of the traveling and the glamour. Um, part of Berlin's ga- for part for Berlin's gallery weekend, I went on a private jet back and forth to Monaco on the same day, um, and I sort of the the piece. I'll just read the oh opening paragraph <laughs> of of this piece. Um, on Friday, I flew to Côte d'Azur in a private jet, and I'm happy to confirm that the Alps are still snow capped. It's not, it's not all quite over yet, then. The lunch excursion was to Art Monte Carlo, an event that inserts itself into Berlin Gallery Weekend by making available a private shuttle. A luminously beautiful girl who sat with me on the plane got several hundred likes for a selfie taken in its cream leather interior. Instagram is like alcohol. It manufactures the lack that drives it, said a Greek collector with indigo eyeshadow who otherwise kept quiet. Her gold bangles rattled as our Mercedes pulled up at Monte Carlo's convention center. Everyone's a leaky bucket, she concluded, stepping out of the car. But social media turns the drip into a waterfall for hydropower. The beautiful girl nodded in agreement. It was chilly in the crammed tax haven, the sky completely black over the hills. I was there for two hours. I think this is quite like like the, the the sort of darkness and the absurdity that like all that I report basically from 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 my trip to Monaco is is this kind of quite like dark um 
statement on on social media as a as a sort of leaky bucket um and then the how bad the weather was there you know this kind of apocalypse like looming under over this this tax haven and in in the Cote um that there was definitely a feeling that it was kind of um that it was too much. It was completely gross, you know? And, and then actually in January, 2020, mm-hmm. just before the, the pandemic, I went to, um, Vapier, this like sort of posh ski resort in the Swiss Alps, um, for a conference about art and climate change. And I did another diary from there. And, and, and this was also sort of Mm-hmm. I remember in the airport in Geneva was the first time when I saw people really wearing masks. It was like something was starting to happen. But but at that point, it was also sort of we were discussing mm-hmm. at the at the conference, do we really need to be here or could we meet in some kind of other way? It's, it seemed quite absurd to to have traveled uh, such a long way to talk about climate change. It was like we were so clearly part of the problem. Um, and And it's sort of interesting to see how how then like a matter of weeks later, really the rug was pulled from underneath this whole system and we were really forced um, to to change mm-hmm. all, all our relationship to all of these events and to the sort of primacy of like physical presence mm-hmm. in a space. I mean, I, there's so much I want to ask from just that, but just as a starting point, I, I wanted to get a sense of just how aware you were as you were beginning this arc of diaries really in in step with the development of the pandemic, that you were, in effect, um, this might be too deep a cut, Lauren um, warned me off of making this, but um, the Ed Yong of of art writing, this pandemic. I mean, I think of you as being, you know, the equivalent to um, a great Atlantic writer who's who's bringing you through the science while also bringing you through the humanity of the experience or the texture of you know, the, the emergency. And I feel that you're doing a similar, um, job by, by locating the absurdity of this, but also the kind of the grinding mechanism of it in your own body as you're traveling, um, against all odds through this year. So just to ask how, how aware were you of what, um, your role might be in, in these diaries and, and how it was it possible to pace yourself. Um, I think I just am do have been doing the diaries the way that I have been doing them the whole time, really. Cause I'm never, uh, I'm never so focused in the diaries, even the kind of ones from, bef- from before the pandemic in really describing so much of like, it's also not called seen and heard anymore, you know, which is, which is significant. Um, I, I don't describe actually so much who was there and what we did and what the art was like. It is much more about these kind of personal impressions and they have not become less poignant for the for the presence of the, of the pandemic, you know, in fact, I think maybe the diaries become a little bit more, um, I'm always able to find this kind of like profundity or these like sort of heavy moments in, in these amidst all the the festivity of like a, a biennial or a gallery weekend or something, but for sure that aspect has been, um, has sort of stood out more, you know, the, the sort of more existential, um, concerns. Um, I mean, I think it was the, I, I wrote a diary in April, uh, 2020, um, which is, I did, I didn't check Mm -hmm. this, but it might just be the only 
diary in the history of art forms diaries that doesn't take place anywhere you know that it's like I'm reporting from nothing um <laughs> I was staying with family in the countryside and like there you know there was not it was sort of um it was quite like um it was quite like a special piece for them to have to to publish I think because there yeah there was it was just a sort of trying to to to, to add some voice to the feeling of those early days of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it, like the first, the first line is something like, um, the quarantini is the drink of the moment. It's just like a martini, except you have it alone. After you've done a diary literally about nothing, about your own head, then the, the subsequent diaries, even that were about something, say like I did Gallery Weekend to 2020 as well, even though it was actually canceled. Yeah. Um, so uh, so it sort of becomes about like what happens when nothing happens. Um, and, and, and even when things do begin to happen again, I, you know, that, that still sort of takes up a lot of space. Like what were the things that didn't happen? Who were the people who weren't here? And what is, and, and sort of describing that, like that feeling of like absence and, and quiet, like the, the gallery weekend of 2019 was insane, you know, like the, this going back and forth on the, on the private jet. And like, um, I think for this last one, I really, um, I actually engaged with people and with the artworks and like had sort of genuine connections with people. And I think in a way that that diary is more hopeful than mm-hmm. this rather sort of bleak one of 2019 with the with the leaky bucket and the dark sky over Monaco. Right. It strikes me this puts a lot of onus on your voice, which I think would be a great deal of fun to explore over a, a series of diaries to sort of ground your reader in in your own lens. Um, but but it would also perhaps be it would require a choice about how you were going to perform yourself. Can you talk a bit about that? It, how how consciously you are you are presenting a version of yourself that is in fact a character. Um. Yeah, that's really why I like the diary so much. Um, I think there is this sense of kind of there there is a little bit more sort of distance, while at the same time it's sort of embodied. You know, I think that there's when you write reviews, you're almost more kind of beholden to your own voice or something because um, mm-hmm. because you're reviewing the um, you're reviewing for sort of a general audience or like an almost from a sort of general position where the where this element of experience in the diary, it makes me much more free. I've done more kind of biting criticism in the, in the diary mm-hmm. format than I have in, in reviews. Um, and I think that there is a certain persona that develops mm-hmm. that I think mm-hmm. it, it exists in other places in my writing too, that I am quite conscious of this kind of, um, this kind of person who's like always a bit drunk and like always quite like obsessed with what's, what, what we're having for dinner and, <laughs> and kind of being a bit like too much and a bit em- embarrassing maybe. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Like there's always a, this kind of absurd mention of like, like regional booze that the, I think in, at one point I also sort of comment on is like, what's, what's a diary without like some regional booze. <laughs> um, and these, these sort of mom- this, this kind of always talking about the food, you know, even if it's like literally we're just eating pizza or I'm like, <laughs> 
I think that in the last one, I had this comment about being like knuckles deep in like mayonnaise. There are certain sort of character traits that this that this like voice has that I think also belongs to the genre. That's what what makes mm-hmm. them in the end diaries is that there is this kind of like using almost as ornaments these tropes of of sort of travel writing or social social diaries um, more as kind of like genre pointers or something than as and and as a kind of like light motif maybe almost mm-hmm. it uh, again I I, I want to take this in a few places but but as as a starting place I I wonder about the what kind of preparation or research. What does research look like? Because what you're evoking in that personification uh, is this sense of sort of a tunnel visioned um, festivity that, you know, you keep bumping into art or into into peers. um, But really, you know, your your gaze is more or less on the pavement just in front of your feet. And and yet I can imagine there is a kind of orating research that has to happen both in preparation for where you're going on in any given uh, sort of quote unquote stumbling night or, or how you're going to tie these things together, how they might have some connection to one one another. So can you talk a bit about sort of what does preparation look like? I can only imagine it could be very overwhelming. Mm, well, I, <laughs> I like I don't actually. It's it's not for me, um, which maybe I shouldn't I shouldn't say. But it comes quite natural um, mm. that it's um, it's a it's sort of about. I think it's it's the same for all writing. No, that it's this kind of constant like negotiation between sort of um, intention and control and composition Mm -hmm. and then something like chance that you sort of just like you have to allow a certain space to just sort of to be able to lean towards uh coincidence and happenstance um Mm -hmm. and and I just have it's really more about sort of having your eyes open I think in that moment and being able to sort of Mm -hmm. spot the literariness of the of the moments and the qualities mm. of the metaphors that kind of are constantly sort of around you and, and then being open to how you can, you can connect um, what you had for dinner with like the art that you saw. Um, and this is what ends mm. up like, like at, in a gallery weekend, I see like 30 exhibitions, you know, I really like, it's not so much the preparation. It's really the time when I'm there, it's like extremely demanding because you really have to kind of see everything and do everything. And then like, um, I don't know, uh, maybe 20% of what you saw and did, you know, and, or less even, you know, like ends up in, in the diary because those are the things that kind of match the narrative. Um, and, and then of course you have to find some kind of, um, middle point between like what matches the narrative and what are also the like most interesting like art pieces say or yeah and then on a technical point about research how are you doing your field work in terms of gathering quotes and remembering the way in which somebody said something I mean like some of these bon mots that you've already quoted for us around the leaky bucket for instance I mean that those are so I uniquely um spoken from the mouths of subjects that are not you (laughs) but I can't imagine you pulling out a notebook or keeping a recorder present through this whole evening or these events so what does that look like um god I hope I'm not like shooting myself in the foot but like um this is also like a big part of my 
my my kind of writing practice outside of this but like really playing in the kind of in the sort of gray area between like fiction and 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 art writing or or fiction and, mm. and some kind of um report right that like if i mm. if i put a name to what someone said then they did say something like that but i don't but i'm like remembering it and and i'm writing it down as i think it sounds good <laughs> um if like say mm. with the um mm. and i do sometimes wonder like god i hope they won't mind but um but no, but, but I mean, I guess it's always quite like benevolent things that people say. It's not, um, it's, it's not like taking a political stance or something, but, um, that in moments such as with the, with the, with the Greek collector and the leaky bucket, I have, you know, like, I think, oh God, anybody who knows me, it's like, I said that, you know, <laughs> but like, I have, but I can't be right. like the, the, I, I can't be the only character in this piece. So I just like made her up. <laughs> I thought it would just, I thought it would be better that she said it than that I right. said it. Right. Um, and it doesn't really matter, you know? No. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm really enjoying this kind of, um, I'm also not as, as like drunk and embarrassing as maybe I seem, you know, or I, at least I, <laughs> I think so, you know, or I like, it's, there is certainly like a great element of like, of like fiction in there. Sure, um, sure. You're ventri ventriloquizing. Yeah, maybe that's the, that's the word for it. Well, um, so let's get into like art forum seen and heard. Those days are done in a certain sense, but you are carrying a certain tradition forward. I, I, we should acknowledge Art Forum, I think, trying to get away from its own reputation on some level with its uh, more recent direction it's taking. And, you know, talk about Me Too, Knight Landsman is at the center of that, um, who's still in a complicated way present, um, I think, in their board. So, so how much, I mean, how much responsibility are you consciously carrying through through etching these out in terms of identifying sort of maybe the future of the diaristic form for this legacy institution or, or trying to maybe move away from certain precedents. Um, and maybe to make that question more specific, are there, are there exemplars of the form, whether, you know, in the annals of art forum or elsewhere um, that you're carrying in your mind as maybe lodestars as you do this work? Um, I think I'm sort of quite blessed with, with with ignorance in in this regard and also with distance um i like don't i've i don't have a connection to to new york i like i don't i or or historically to art forum i love uh working with them and i think that i have really nice relationships to the people who who work there but i've never met them you know um so i um I don't like, I don't, I'm not terribly conscious of this. Um, mm. I can imagine if like, of course they make a decision when they, when they invite me to, to do these, that they, that somehow what I write like represents the direction that they want to go in, but it's not, um, mm. it's not a direction that I like fashion in, in relation to, to, to their expectations or some, something like some, some feeling that I have about where they want to go. Cause I don't know that I could write them in any other way. It's just sort of what comes out, right? I see. So it's not heavily guided, it sounds. W what is the editorial relationship like? I, I'm, I always really enjoy it. Like, uh, I think that um, 
uh, Zach and Chloe who are editing me now or, or have, and, and Hiji who, who was working there previously. Um, they're, they're, I'm always surprised at what they kind of like, let me, uh, let me get away with or something. I think, okay, this, this paragraph is clearly like here I'm going off on a tangent or this is not, surely this is too much like me or, um, or something, but they're really like open for <laughs> me to sort of play around with the format and to, mm. and to, and to sort of have these slightly more, um, I mean, I say diaristic, it's, it's the diary, but like, um, these more sort of prosaic, right. mm-hmm. uh, piece like parts and, mm-hmm. Um, and, and for it to get a little bit weird and for me to like crack these like jokes that like maybe, maybe not are funny. Um, and, and all this sadness and all these emotions that are always put into it. It's like, I'm, I'm really like happy that they, that they always take that and run with it and like ask me to make it better rather than just cut it out, which is, I think what, what many editors would have done. I wanted to get you to quote, um, a section here from retreat yourself just to set this up. In Retreat Yourself, one of the diaries, you, you move from naming the quarantini, as we mentioned, to um, a pop star, to Freud's distinction between mourning and melancholia, to getting drunk with your friend, tracing an Alex Katz catalog, uh, Jaiko Palisvuo, if I'm mispronouncing that name, forgive me, and then into this passage, which I'd like you to read for us now. In the Cathedral of Monreale in Sicily, 12th century gold mosaics illustrate stories from the Bible from start to finish, floor to ceiling. But the most remarkable panels depict creation in a synchrony of Byzantine figures and Hilmar Klimt-like geometries. How do you illustrate the early days of existence, with its division of darkness from light and the waters above from the waters below, without turning to abstraction? In melancholia, the shape of what is ending and its temporality is sprawling and incomprehensible. The ambivalence makes it hard to bear. The world of retreat is rendered in lush pink and purple watercolors, which dissolve into wild and messy abstractions. In apocalypse, the divisions established in Genesis bleed back out. My own corona retreat is similarly soft, color field like, each day a blurred succession of quarantinis, YouTube, yoga, and televised press conferences. As restrictions mount, so does abstraction. For now, I'm still rooting for love to save the world. I think it sits well as a as a kind of tonal uh, height that I think you reach in this series, or at least over this year. Um, and, and not to stress the question too much about how these things get mapped, but it, it really is striking to me that this in no way has, has the bearings of um, an editorial hand guiding it like an arrow towards art. It's somehow allowed to retain its existential center, to float uncomfortably as a collection of experiences that are connected by thought rather than a marketplace. <laughs> I, I just, I'm, I marvel at the freedom of it. Um, and I guess I just wonder, especially for some of our listeners who are emerging writers, like what does forming a text like this look like? So much freedom can feel oppressive, I think, for, for a lot of 
writers. So, you know, can you talk to us a little bit about sort of the the psychogeography of this? If if it's not so tethered to an event, what what are you allowing yourself to do? And is that ever an overwhelming sensation? The amount of room you have to play. Um, I think this is actually where the diary as a as a format is really helpful um, mm. because there is a kind of um, there is a length, there's a structure, there's a certain tone of voice and the way that you go about making a real, a, a normal diary, let's say like where you spend uh, four days or, or, or however long in a place. And then, and then you simply sort of, um, you pick certain, certain things that happened and you make them kind of come together into a narrative, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And naturally what with this diary retreat yourself where I'm kind of not really, nothing really happened, but I can still, I can still work in that same way. Like simply find like Mm -hmm. certain things that are emblematic to me, um, of how I feel, which things resonate. And it's often sort of, yeah, like reading Yako's, uh, book retreat, um, listening to this like Lana Del Rey song in the shower and then kind of like remember, like being reminded of this Mm -hmm. like trip to Sicily with the, um, like they, they, those are also, they become very much like seeing an artwork or having a conversation or eating mm. something for dinner in like mm-hmm. Austria or Cologne or wherever, you know, um, mm-hmm. you, you, you can structure it in the same way. I don't know that I would have been able to write that in the way that I did this retreat yourself if I hadn't written a fair amount of diaries before, um, that like, that I had sort of have mm-hmm. this format mm-hmm. on, on, on my, on my spine in a way. You cap um, an excellent bit of criticism um, with, by then, I think I was drunk, <laughs> slightly drunk, slightly embarrassing, but, but at the same time, existentially poignant um, self-narrator. How, how, was there a decision point? Was there a fictive character that you are holding aloft in your mind? Like, again, I'm kind of wondering if there's any precedent for this, even in the literary world that you're, however, unconsciously maybe reaching for. There, there are many, of course. Um, I love this sort of combination of like a, of sort of an, an, an Elizabeth Hardwick or somebody like that who can really write with such emotional intensity in her essays. Mm -hmm. And then someone like Janet Malcolm, who has this much more kind of like embodied, Mm -hmm. she's often like referring to conversations and she has this really incisive sort of objectivity. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, but then of course these, these figures are somehow too like eminent and they're too perfect and it doesn't fit in with my life and how I sort of like act in, 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 well, at any time, really, but in these kinds of social situations. So it becomes like the the sort of like more like botched drunk version of these people that I that I admire. <laughs> um, and but also maybe as a way of kind of I guess it's it's like a social strategy that 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 that, that a lot of people use, you know, that you that it, you kind of humble yourself or something in order to to, to sort of get away with things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, mm-hmm. and seeing as I am sometimes quite like, like I'm thinking about this one diary I had from, from Graz, from Steirischer Herbst a, a couple of years ago, where um, I, I quote a, a colleague of, of mine, Rahel Aima. Yes, she's one of our associate editors. Yeah. Um, we were there together and she, and she, she had this really funny comment that like, um, about Jeremy Deller's artwork, that it was about as bold as someone's dad starting a band. 
Um, which of course is, is something that you could never like write in a review, you know, but it's just like, so, so good, you know? Um, and, and like these, these kinds of like comments that you, to make space for them in, mm. in the, in, in the, in the text, I think you have to, it, like, I also put myself down a little bit, you know, mm. like at the, like later on, I, I say like, a a young woman wore passport size photographs of a lady with a quiff as earrings. Is that LaRue? I asked. It's Hannah Arendt, she said. And my friends suggested it was time to go home. Um, <laughs> like this kind of embarrassing moment where I like, don't, re- like, I think that Hannah Arendt is LaRue. And mm-hmm. I don't just, it, I, I guess it's a way of like trying to be, trying to be charming amidst all of this, like sort of more or less high flown, often quite melancholic or like quite intellectual on the other hand. It's sort of, it's a, it's a way to sort of balance those things out. But I have to ask, is there a risk on the other side of this freedom and this play of um, becoming overly precious about your own voice or falling in love with your own voice um, in a way that can be kind of dangerous to the integrity of the writing? It, it, have, you, have you asked yourself this? Is this a question that's on your mind at all? Um, yes. Um, <laughs> I, it is. I do think, like, did I embarrass myself this time or did I go too far? Also, does it seem as if I'm being flippant or not serious? You know, because often, like, it, it's it's not just about artworks that other people made or art events that, that people have, have arranged, but also like places where people are from and where I'm not from and I'm right. visiting say. Right. Um, and so I like this kind of flip flippancy can maybe, I, you know, maybe does come across um, to some people as, as like, as like crass or rude or, um, you know, so I, I certainly do, keep that in mind I guess that's also this yeah this kind of like push and pull that the 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 narrator is not um does not have like so much authority necessarily or like that authority is sort of brought into question at times you know by saying like oh I think maybe I was drunk or like I you know um that 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 is a way of kind of like helping that but I think in there I'm really trusting the editors like I'll um I'll make some kind of joke and they'll be like, actually, this isn't funny or this doesn't quite parse. Or I think that it's also like often a cultural thing um, that in, in the Lulo uh, biennial one, um, I was being much more um, the whole discourse in Sweden and in, and in, in Scandinavia in general around the pandemic is much more um there's a lot more space uh, because it has not been so crass as it has been in, in the United States and in New York, maybe in particular, um, th- it was a little bit more of a light topic. Um, and that, and, and like, and I, and, and that was a moment when the editors kind of go in and like sort of moderate, like what, um, how can we talk about this to an international audience? Um, so, I mean, I think for those, those things I do, re- I do rely on, I do rely on the editors. Um, Though, of course, a lot of the things are really, yeah, I am the, the, like the man in the field, you know, who like, yeah, the people, the, the editors in New York might not be able to, to sort of com- like tell what might be offensive on the ground in Lulo. And yeah, there's a risk there, but that's also, there's a, there always is. Right. I mean, there should be ideally. Yeah. 
this might be a good moment for us to talk about the book, because in fact, what I, I'm sort of carrying in my mind as I'm asking you about um, the preciosity of your own voice potentially as a risk here is a quote from an excerpt that you recently published from a book you're, you're putting out actively called Doing Time, uh, Essays on Using People. And the excerpt was published in Moose. Um, there's a quote in here, and, and again, maybe you're ventriloquizing uh, yourself uh, through someone else here, but the quote is, this is the danger, that you become seduced by your own voice and forget about the people. So I, I'd love to take this opportunity f- first for you to talk to us a bit about this book and how it might live in relation to this kind of work that you're doing in the diaries, because I want to understand how you're navigating these relationships that you're kind of exposing or playing out your friendships, your lovers, and what are the rules of engagement? Um, you know, have people started to be a bit wary of of being in your presence for some of these these trips or these nights out? I mean, I don't know. I just wonder what this looks like uh, in your lived life. But but yeah, maybe we can start by talking a bit about the book if you can set that up for us mm. a bit. Um, so the book is 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 rather a long story, but begins with a correspondence that I started um, in 2015 with uh, with someone named Michael, who at the time was in prison in California, and I just started corresponding with him for no other reason than that I was interested. Um, to he he had signed up for like a service where if you want to be in correspondence with strangers, you you can be, you know. So he we I guess we were just both interested in like talking to somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and then since I, I went on to write quite a lot uh, this, this quite long essay about, um, our correspondence as a kind of, uh, structure and a jumping off point to discussing a lot of issues around the prison industrial complex, but also around like et- the ethics of, of, of solid the, or the politics of solidarity maybe. And, and, and these kind of issues around like differences in privilege and, and what that does to a relationship. Um, and I think during and after I wrote, I started writing about Michael's and my relationship that I became like really preoccupied with, with what it means to use other people in your writing, um, use their experiences Mm -hmm. and use your friendship. It's very much about this, the, the particular dynamic between two people also. Um, and the excerpt from Moose is this, um, it sort of takes it somewhere else where I like, I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting on what it means to use not, not Michael's uh, letters and his experiences because the, the, his experiences are quite sort of quite extreme and quite se- se- severely different from mine. Um, but just also people around mm-hmm. me, people I've gone on dates with um, people who are, who are artists around me and how like our personal interactions sort of spawn a type of art criticism um, and that this art criticism mm-hmm. becomes valuable there are two things that become valuable kind of. And one is maybe the language, as you say, that you become seduced by your own voice, that you kind of, you can't let go of the writing because it's somehow, you think that it's beautiful. Um, and the other is right. that like, oh, I actually, I found something out here. I did some like, some work. Um, and mm-hmm. and so somehow the text, like sort of, the text is in the world and you sort of, um, you feel a bit like trapped by it. Maybe you sort of wish you hadn't written it in that way. And, and I, I also write in the same piece. I ask myself, like, why can't you just write fiction? You know, why this kind of constant, like mining, uh, reality for these stories. Um, mm-hmm. and, 
and I think that the process, this, this book that's coming out now, it's, it's essays from the last five years, four years. Um, so this has been a really long process of kind of coming to terms with what this means. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that's also partly why I can do the diaries in this quite like, um, potentially sort of flippant way or something is that I really went there with, with the book. And I've, I've spent so much time like thinking about this and I've mm. sort of gotten over the fact that it's risky and, and sometimes uncomfortable and it does have a price. Um, but also mm-hmm. in the end, in the end, it's just writing. I've like, I've stopped being afraid of this kind of that, like, um, of this, of this supposed mm. power that you have as the one who like wields the pen. Um, often mm. people don't actually, the people on the other end, they don't really care, you know, like, um, mm. it's, it, it, there isn't this kind of, I think that there's such an overemphasis on representation, you know, as if the representation mm-hmm. is the, um, is the sphere in which the violence takes place rather than the sphere in which the violence is kind of portrayed. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I think like all of my thinking about that has kind of made it actually possible for me to write in the way that I, that I do now really sort of dipping in and out of fiction and experience and other people's lives. Was there a turning point? How, how did that revelation come about? I think it came about for not being able to stop somehow, like, um, that as much as my like the 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 first writing that I did about like uh about Michael's and my correspondence was was quite like burdened by by this kind of guilt in a way, um, and still I did it anyway. You know, I just kept doing it anyway, and it was somehow it sort of seemed a bit like inescapable. It was sort of like okay, I guess this is what it means to be a writer in the end, and. Um, mm. And, and now, of course, like I do often change people's names, like the ones, the people in this, this excerpt that was published in Moose, I, you know, they're not their names and the things that I say about them are also, you know, made to sort of fit the mold. And then the text also really like, Mm -hmm. um, reflects on that, reflects on that sort of, um, Mm -hmm. um, lapse of truth, um, Mm Yeah. Um, I don't know if, 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 and I think it's also, it's, it's a, it's a turning point. It's it's sort of an intellectual one, but I think it's also just about like maturity, I guess. Um, growing older and realizing you can't be in the world. You can't necessarily leave the world like unharmed. Like, um, that's part of what it means to Mm -hmm. be here. Um, But I would I would just maybe want to press that one step further with regards to the diaries, because it strikes me there would be sort of a Heisenberg principle at play at some point in this process where, you know, whoever you're night tripping with or whichever gallerist you're in conversation with over your Bellinis is is very conscious of what of the fact that this is material potentially. Um, and I can imagine that that's been true for a long time. As long as you're regularly writing for something like Art Forum, you know, you will be um, a presence of note for for those you're in conversation with. But but is that ever, um, can that choke anything up? Do you find people becoming more self-conscious or perhaps more performative in your presence? No, not really. But also I think I'm not a very visible person. Mm. Um, 
online. Like nobody knows who I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, so I, I think that people don't necessarily know or, or care what's going on in, in, in the moment. Um, and also maybe, maybe 10 years ago before like social media, the, the, the diary was maybe a, a lot more read by a lot more people. And now it's sort of maybe has a like smaller, but more like interested audience or something. It's, um, mm-hmm. it's a slightly different, different thing. Um, I guess I do also have the feeling, you know, when you're with people, you know, the people who are up for being, for, for, for acting with a certain, for, for acting in a certain way in a social context are also often up for being part of a, of a diary, you know, or like, the the personalities that kind of pop out at you they they sort of um they ask for that too a little mm-hmm. bit you know mm-hmm. you don't you like you don't take i i often i hate taking the pictures actually mm-hmm. this is something that i really can never get used to i'm really bad even at taking i never even take pictures of myself or of my own life because somehow the act of taking pictures i just, I, uh, I i'm too yeah I, I i just i really don't like that part um and i can feel sometimes um some people are really like want to have their picture taken and really invite me to to do it or they ask like oh like oh and my friends are over here and come and mm. you know which is also fine mm. and other people i ask them and they are really like no or um, only if I get to like hold a book up in front of my face or a loaf of bread once or something. But, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it, you, you get immediately a feeling when you talk to people, if they think that this is fun or not. Right. Um, right. That's also why it's so important that the text in the end comes across as very personal and that there is space for this element of emotion or sensitivity there so that people can tell that their, that their portrait comes from like a human place. Right. Um, I think that goes a long way to sort of forgive, forgive that human. (laughs) That's well said. I want to ask one more central question of these diaries before we move into some rapid fire questions around your writing practice, which is something we like to cap each episode with. Um, but before we move into that, just to, to touch on maybe, um, something that's so central to the work we do at Momus is, is the operative work of criticism within these diaries. Um, It seems to me that you're able to condense or compress critical, uh, not shrapnel, it's it's not weaponized, but there are these sort of compressed diamond-like forms that, that you slide in between parentheticals or almost as an ellipses out of the corner of your mouth as you're moving through these nights. Um, so for instance, post-internet is thematizing alienation by accelerating it, or central Germany is, its central preoccupation in terms of contemporary art is producing an aesthetic response to the world's depletion. You, you say these things so brilliantly, and as I say, in passing, um, and I wonder, first of all, is this difficult to do? Like, I just want to understand if those are are actually really hard pronouncements to arrive at um, as easily as they are read. And then I also, you know, maybe in the larger sense, want to understand if this is, is this an easier function of criticism to do, to do these kinds of assessments in passing rather than to build something out like you would with a review, say? Um, I think in response to the response to the, both of those questions is sort of, is is yes 
or that, that like that they are that they are kind of easier they are kind of easy to write and the reason why they're easy to write is because the, the, the because of this kind of embodied like format i'm not so beholden to like posterity or to like art history so i can mm. just sort of like like say something and, and 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 it won't be so sort of deeply questioned i really enjoy that because of course i have all these like sort of pocket philosophies about like what is the central preoccupation of german art or something but it's like <laughs> it's not scholarly like you know it's not um, <laughs> Uh, but but I like that I I can put that into a paragraph that then goes on to to say what what topping was on my pizza that that's kind of what um, what enables this. But I I really like that I find that some of my like more sort of clear headed art mm. criticism comes in 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 this context. One question we love to ask everybody off the top is: Do you like writing? Yes. That's rare. I know a lot of people don't, but I, re- I really, I really do. Huh. Can you say more about that? What, what does it feel like? I think for me, it feels quite like reading. That mm-hmm. it's like a way of being like inside myself, and to have this sense of sort of expanse um, mm. that no one can take away. You know, it's like uh, it's free and it's endless. I often also when I read, I'm quite like obsessive about like 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 taking quotes out of the book like writing mm. um quotes from the book down mm-hmm. so it takes me so long to read things because i'm 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 always almost sort of writing at the same time and mm. i don't know for me those two things are quite quite similar and it's really like um like a very valuable sort of inner inner space to read you i i believe you i, I mean i think that the pleasure of your writing is evident um just to say when do you write um in the morning mostly so then maybe this question is is moot but do you ever write under the influence I write some things you know like I do I am somebody like this sounds like a a sort of cliche but I am somebody who will like suddenly have to write something down on my phone or even if if I come home like stumbling drunk or something I might have had like an idea while I was riding my bike and listening to some music or something and then and then I will write something mm-hmm. down, but it will be this kind of like super raw scrap that, you know, mm-hmm. that maybe can be picked up at some point, but it is not writing, you know, it is really like, um, some kind of, uh, like secretion. <laughs> <laughs> How much do you delete? Do you edit as you go or after you've written? I think I edit as I go. I don't uh, tend to, uh, to write, to, to delete. Who do you write for? That's a really good question. Oh God, I, this it, it sounds really like conceited, but maybe like a like a better version of myself or something. Um, I'm, I, and I and of course my I think I I wish that I had more of a sense that there was like a broad public that was sort of interested in my work. But with a lot of this art writing, I'm really writing for the my like peers in the like community, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess it's also related to reading. I like, and that's what I mean by like a better version of, of myself that I like, I want to write something that I would like want to read. So I think that that's what I have in mind is trying to sort of create some of those experiences that I have when I read things that I love. Do you read or write in other languages? I read and write in, in Danish. I also read in Swedish and Norwegian, um, which I actually love doing, um, because those languages are just a little bit different. 
And mm. so there's a lot of like poetry for me and a lot of beauty in that like sort of strangeness. Mm. Um, I rare Danish is my first language and I rarely, I rare, I, I rarely write in, in Danish, but sometimes I, sometimes I do. And it's it sort of, I, and sometimes that can be really fun. Like I wrote an essay for a, a, a Danish museum recently about a painting exhibition and, um, and the re- and how I was able to write that in Danish because I'm usually just not. It comes out completely botched because Danish grammar and syntax is is quite different from from English, and so you end up, especially when you're writing about art, you end up with this kind of horrible, like sort of Danglish, you know, that you use words that don't that are sort of directly translated from English and they just don't work. I see. Um, so that's why I don't do it really. Like, oh. um, but huh. um, but. I had read a really brilliant essay by a Danish poet named Inga Christensen, mm. um, like who is such an incredible writer, like maybe the really like someone who was robbed of the Nobel Prize. Um, but um, and just have like I need someone's voice in my mind like that, mm-hmm. like to be able to write in Danish, like something to kind of kickstart me, someone who can really write. And then if I have their voice in my head. And, and, and seeing how they use the language, then, then I can get started. Which writer, alive or dead, would you like to have a drink with? Oh, my God. What is the, like, good answer to this? Um, <laughs> I, like, suddenly can't remember um, um, anything that I've read. Um, <laughs> um, you know what? Maybe, like... It's not it's a strange one, maybe, but like Emily Bronte. Mm, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> God, I'm so unfashionable. Um, I wish that I could come up with something kind of cool and edgy, but I just really find that like um, she died so young and I feel like she had so many more things to say and I want to like hear them. And then like Weathering Heights mm. is just so fucking weird and like disturbing. Um and got in another one that I just thought of actually, um, Françoise Sagan, mm. who wrote the um, Bonjour Tristesse. Um, mm. Like I've seen interviews with her later in her life where she's just like, she she's driving like a crazy person around Paris and like, she's really like, like I think she would be great not just to have a drink with, but to really like go all out with. Right. Emily Bronte and Françoise Sagan. <laughs> you you yeah. got you got somewhere. <laughs> okay, as a final as a final question to you, um, what is the pleasure of writing? I think that it is a, it's a little bit related to what I said before, but it is this kind of way that you can you escape at the same time as you really fashion something. Mm-hmm. That you kind of you retreat into this inner world, but you're also really creating a kind of object that becomes real. Mm-hmm. That and I and I do really I do really love that. That it's not like that. It has this element of sort of fantasy and the sort of expansiveness of the imaginary. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, it's really something that you can kind of share, and that also changes you. I think uh, it changes you, and hopefully some of the people who read it. Mm-hmm. Um, so. So I, I really, I really like this this combination of, of, of the sort of realness of its effect and the kind of imagine and the expansiveness of of its content. Maybe. I think you just articulated something that I've been waiting my life 
to hear articulated. So you can't ask for a better conclusion than that, Christian. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Momus the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish with assistant production from Mitra Shiram. This season's music is arranged by Ulysses Castellanos. We would like to thank Christian Vistrup Madsen for his contribution to this season. And a special thanks, as always, to all of you who are supporting the podcast. Yes, and I should mention um, we are now in a position to issue tax receipts for personal donations. So please. <laughs> It's only taken seven years to get here, so please reach out <laughs> immediately to Sky yeah. Gooden. That's two <laughs> eyes and two knees at <laughs> Do you have some serious issues with your tax returns? <laughs> the Contact Sky Gooden and she will make stop. them go away. <laughs> I love it. We will also... <laughs> Can you imagine at the same time we also offer the service of like just doing your taxes, like filing your taxes? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. um, Can you can you close this out? I think. Oh yeah. Sorry. (laughs) This has been episode thirty three of Momus the podcast.